Hey everyone, and welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast, where we interview Canadian leaders in business and philanthropy. This week, we speak with Elmer Kim. Elmer is the Chief Investment Officer and Head of the Hyatt Lingia Family Office, where he works closely with Season 1 guest Michael Hyatt. And we speak with Elmer about the often secretive world of working in the family office space. We hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is. I never actually found the job um, where I went out and applied for a job. It always, you know, it was always through uh, people I knew. So I got a call from a, um, a good friend of mine, and uh, he was the CFO for High Net Worth Family in Toronto and White Castle Investments Limited, uh, incredible group of people. Um, and it was, you know, in 1995, in the early 1990s, uh, family offices were a relatively new concept in Canada. And certainly uh, in Toronto, very few. So we're probably about 25 to 30 years behind in the development of family or investment holding companies <clears throat> when we compare ourselves to the U.S. So we're just kind of getting along that path. So uh, the CFO at White Castle asked me to apply for a, a road there, and uh, it was a relatively small shop. Um, so I made a hard decision uh, to uh, go from doing you know multi, at that time what I thought was really important, doing multi $10 million type of real estate transactions uh, to go into a family office to be a vice president and corporate controller. Um, so this this role at White, this was uh, your first foray into the family into office. Into the family space. office. And I think the interesting thing is um, everybody needs to have a hard skill. So you need to have a hardcore uh, capability in something that you're really good at. So you're either an accountant or an actuary or an engineer or or you're a welder or you're a baker or you gotta be something that you're really physically or or intellectually good at, and then you got to build a business case around that to deliver uh, revenues off of that ultimately. So I was asked to come in and take on the tax and accounting administrative roles, um, and that ultimately evolved into um, as we start to invest, we start to guess, invest much more um, uh, into the venture world. And you know, as a, as a as ultimately a business person, you get attracted to the business end of it rather than the administration, accounting, and tax end of it. Although um, you know, those are both good opportunities, but that's the direction I went. So let me take a second here to, to clarify what a family office is. So what is a family office? Family office is, um, I guess colloquially, um, a holding company uh, that serves the needs of the shareholders that are predominantly one family or, an, uh, or a close extended family. So you deal with their tax and estate, uh, trust work, the long-term strategic planning to deliver uh, economic value or growth or income for them and to deal with the other issues they may need. So uh, multiple residences, uh, travel, and so on and so forth, So, which are ultimately complicated once you become, uh, uh, you hit a certain level of wealth. So from there, you know, how do you generate income to sustain whatever philanthropy you may want to do, whatever uh, living you want to do, and how do you create a um, a, a platform of investments to ultimately deliver the actual need of the shareholders or the family. So if they want to go out and do things or make investments or run a company, how do you create an infrastructure around them to enable them to do what they want to do? So it, it's, it's a one-stop shop then for a wealthy individual or a wealthy family where they can manage their finances and their tax and 
their estate planning all in in one space, and do they and they have employees working for them at this family office? Correct, and so you have employees, and you either outsource certain capabilities. You may, you know, some of the highly technical skills on the tax and estate planning. You may uh, outsource. Uh, you may outsource some of the legal work. Some of them you may have inside, but it's a function of what the needs and desires of the family, what the asset base is. So that was the environment um, I started in, um, and I, you know. I don't think there's a career path where it kind of led me that way. I just kind of happened to follow in that path. I think um, as well, um, listen, you know, thinking about the audience of this podcast, I would recommend people chase, you know, one, uh, a couple things. One is you need to have a hardcore skill set that you you need to develop, whatever that is. So you need to spend ten thousand hours developing a really good skill that which you're really good at, and. Uh, from there, uh, chase an industry of growth. Uh, I happen to have fallen into um, uh, the the alternative assets or family office investment uh, environment, which has grown very rapidly over the last uh, 25 years or so. And but if I had planned to done that, I don't think I would have found it. But I happen to have landed in an area of growth. So I think where the you know the fun and excitement will be for the next little while, who knows? But certainly you can watch where the capital flow goes, where the you know, headlines of the newspapers are, um, but uh, chasing growth is the critical part of it all. And you, you did a bit of, uh, of growth chasing post uh, your, your time at, at White Castle when you ended up at, at BDC, correct? Yeah, so what happened was I spent 17 years with, uh, with White Castle, so almost 18 years, an uh, incredible group of people. I'm still very close with the family and the, and the management team there. Uh, we had multi-assets, uh, multi-strategy asset platforms. So we had venture capital, we had real estate, we had a private equity fund, um, and and so I developed a set of skill sets that were beyond just the one vertical aspect of it. So foundationally, I'm an accountant. I became a very good investor, and then I started to understand how to invest in technology, how to invest in real estate, how to invest in uh, buyouts. Um, and from there, I got recruited to, uh, to Bank of Nova Scotia inside the Roynet platform to help build out their equity, uh, growth equity platform inside of, inside of Scotiabank. And I did that for five years. Had a wonderful time working with some incredible people, uh, making some great investments. So that was the background. And from there, I went to BDC. And so what are you doing? You mentioned, I want to kind of dig in here. You mentioned that um, you learned how to invest in technology. Like, for most people, that just means buying, you know, Google stock or buying Facebook stock. That means you're investing in technology. What, what did you do that was different from just going out and buying, for example, Google stock? Yeah. So what we did was we were in the we're in the uh, heart of technology investing in the 1990s. My partners and my boss at that time, at, at White Castle, they decided that we're going to chase growth, whatever that looked like. And growth happened to look like technology back then. So if you you know kind of unwind the clock and go backwards. The 1990s, you know, it was tough for real estate. It was tough for industrial businesses. It was tough for a whole bunch of things. Interest rates were high, um, but what was clearly happening was there's this whole evolution going on with the Telecommunications Act. What's going on with uh, client-server technology? And we didn't know it, but that was venture capital, early stage investing, um, and we started to get excited about some of the wonderful people that were being. Um, that were coming up with great ideas and great business concept and, and actually executing on early stages of those businesses and we we're funding them as, uh, as venture capital uh, providers. 
And, and then you, you and you kept doing that throughout the rest of your career for, at Renet and at BDC. That's right. And so that's kind of evolved. So we went from venture capital, and I've always kind of chased growth, which is kind of my theme. And then in the early 2000s, I didn't necessarily believe venture capital was going to continue because we had that horrible uh, tech implosion in the early 2000s. Um, so we, we created a, um, a small buyout fund going after the smaller middle market companies in Canada that required... Um, uh, take out capital to take it to the next stage. So we raised money from institutional capital, uh, institu institutional capital providers like the pension plans, um, and White Castle was a very important um, anchor um, as an LP as well as a partner in the fund. And Carrie Diamond was my partner in the group. Um, and we bought, you know, more traditional businesses. So we bought garbage businesses, chemical and oil recycling businesses, financial services, food companies and we helped grow them and ultimately um, exit from them. And this is post-tech bubble. That's right. Gotcha. That's right. And so the same the skill sets that apply in investing in tech apply in every other sector, right? So you're identifying the opportunity, how big the market is, what the competitive advantage you may be fighting with, and ultimately how do you exit from the businesses. So, you know, the risk return is, uh, is slightly different than what's venture. Uh, but the application of being a good investor in one sector applies in the other sector, so whatever gets you excited. And, and since then, you've now uh, taken the, 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 the helm, so to speak, of, a, of another family office yeah. in, in, your, in your most recent role, which this is what's really interesting. So now you've, you've gone from you know, working at a family office for, for 18 years to you know, then uh, chasing growth at Ronet and at BDC, and now you're back to the family office space. That's right. So I, I think you know, one of the interesting points that people don't realize, and although Canada looks like 35 million people and there's, a, there's 350 million people in the U.S., you got to start building your personal brand as to who you are. Like in my personal brand is pretty simple. I'm a good guy. Um, um, there's integrity in what I do. Um, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I really get my stuff done. So you start developing a personal brand as to what you do, and the world that you operate in actually is much smaller than you think. And so um, uh, my good friend Michael Hyatt um, got liquid a couple years ago with Richard, his brother, uh, when they sold their company, and they asked for some help in transitioning them from being uh, entrepreneurs that were twice successful to being uh, investors. So I'm in the process of helping the Hyatts and one other family transition and set a foundation from being entrepreneurs to long-term asset managers and stewards of their money for the next generations as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Like, yeah. you, you simplified it, but like, what does that actually look what like? So, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it, it's, it's, it's a case-by-case -case study, but I think at the end of the day, the, the most important thing is to sit down um, with the, the shareholders slash the family members and say, what is your ultimate goal? Uh, what is your long-term planning needs? And you start to build a portfolio around that. So if, if the family or the individual wants to, um, you know, uh, be, uh, be an entrepreneur once again, so you set up a foundation or ultimately a business case where they can go out and buy another company or start a brand new business. So how do you do that? So, you know, what are they interested in? What do they want to do? How much time and money do they want to deploy at it? And that's one case. If the family doesn't want to work anymore, and they want to give it all away, how do you create a sustainable, you know, charitable foundation that can continuously give? If the family or the individuals want to go out and, um, and pursue academics, how do you create a, found, how do you create a family office so that there's very little 
overhead required, but it still enables them live off of it so they can go attend to their other uh, particular interests. So, so setting up a family office is a combination of meeting what the shareholder needs are as well as what the investments are. So you know, every investment looks great, but it doesn't actually have to be appropriate for that uh, individual or family. And so I think that's the hard part people don't appreciate is that investments, are, all investments are not all good. I'm sorry, not invest, investments that are good for one group may not be appropriate for another. So it's always a matching of what the needs are in terms of liquidity, return expectation, risk profile. And if you get that right, then it kind of sets the foundation for long-term, uh, long-term uh, uh, wealth creation. In this role, what do you what do you like most uh, relative to your previous roles, where you were more focused on chasing growth, so to speak, or or you know taking or finding companies that were worth investing in? Now this is obviously a very seems to be a very different role. We're doing a lot of different things. How? What do you like most about this one versus previous roles? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, this is kind of like going back to uh, you know my my roots with uh, with my first family office. So all the learnings I had uh, from then apply here. I'm a little bit you know certainly older than I was back then, and certainly a lot more experience. What I do like about what I do now is I get to meet some interesting people. I get to you know be an asset allocator across various sectors. So if I believe that you know real estate in the United States is the place I want to be, that's where I'm going to chase. If I think you know China and India is going to be the growth for the next 25, 30 years, I have to try to figure out how do I deploy capital in that market in a, in a risk-adjusted way. So I don't actually have a, a tight um, uh, a tight mandate. It's more delivering a longer-term risk-adjusted return that, if, that you know that my my shareholders would like. So I get you know, very creative, uh, creative approaches how to deploy capital. I get to meet lots of interesting people. And I get to kind of sit at the top of the mountain and kind of look around a little bit more uh, as opposed to being in a, in a larger corporate environment where there's a lot more pressure to actually get deals done for the sake of uh, say, get, getting ca- capital and assets deployed. Sounds like the dream job. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's a, a, a lot of guys would give their left arm for uh, what I do, and I, I, I do feel extremely fortunate. I do, uh, I never imagined that this world existed, but, you know, I've met other people with some incredible career paths as well. So, you know, I, I think for young people, I, I keep, you know, again, hard skills important. I think second or third language really matters these days. Uh, the competition isn't really with people just around your neighborhood, it's around the globe. Uh, the, the ability to um, digest information is critical. I don't think people read enough. I don't think they're knowledgeable enough. Um, they don't, you know, I think, you know, you know, there was a period of time where we used to spend time reading the newspapers and understanding what's going on in the rest of the world. The, the confluence of technology and media has just changed so much that it's always accessible. And so you don't think you have to, have to think through it. So, you know, I, I can tell you that when I first started work in 87, you know, almost every executive had in their office a Financial Times and a Wall Street Journal and The Economist. But, you know, when I go around talking to people now, I rarely see anybody actually having read the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal on a regular basis. And that was always the start to the day. And I still think there's huge value in understanding, you know, the, 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 the interplay between politics and culture and the economy to determine how and when you should, uh, what career path you should continuously take. I want to dive back into what you said about the hard skill. Like everyone should get one hard skill. 
if I'm studying, you know, political science at a university in Canada, is that considered a hard skill? Like, what what would you define being a, a hard skill? I, I think a hard skill is, is is when you get into a, you know, I look at offices now, is it's full of people with, you know, great communication skills, great networking skills, but you know, what do they at the end of the day? What do they? What can they do? If 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 I ask them to fix a watch, can they actually fix a watch? But we all know watches need fixing. We all know that cars need to be fixed. You know, I have an example of. Um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, um, sold the real estate business for his father, uh, wealthy family, um, and uh, ultimately he wanted to get into uh, building homes. So he, in his in his mid forties, decided to go work for a house builder, and he started to slug, uh, you know, drywall on his back. Uh, he hammered, he dug holes, and he did this for a year to understand how the business worked, uh, where to get access to trades. What are the dynamics in a work site? Um, and that ultimately, he ended up becoming a very successful boutique uh, high-end home builder. And because he learned to make the hard, you know, the hard skill was how do you get the, how do you get the drywalls to match up uh, properly so there's no seams. So that's a hard skill I'm talking about. And I think right now, um, we don't take enough time when we're young. You know, people live, people are going to live until their 90s now. People live, you know, well into the 80s, highly functional. And so, you know, I think that through your 20s and 30s is a great period of time to pick up some hard skills. You know, whether it's, 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 it's science and technology, medicine, law, accounting, uh, there are hard skills to be learned and that becomes a foundation of how you start to be a more around the business person. I think, I think as well, there is this expectation there's a shorter path to the top. I think it's, it's still a long grind. Um, but it's a uh, you know the grind is is favorable for the young people. The baby boomers are all retiring off um, very rapidly. Um, the the uh, the development of technology is such that the ability to reach out to new markets and new customers and new clients are uh, are much easier than it was 25 years ago, let alone 10 years ago. So I think. Um, I think the opportunity for young people with a hard skill, with the ability to speak another language, where the world's getting smaller every day, um, and, um, and and focusing on growth really does matter. So what should, if I'm a student, right? I'm in my second year of university, I'm studying commerce, or even if I'm you know recently out of school, if I just graduated and I'm you know, working in finance downtown at a bank or whatnot, how should I be thinking about these hard skills, or or how should I be should I be waking up and and, and you know if, if I'm coding yeah, like yeah, what do you think? Well, they like be if doing? I was in a bank right now, so I'm a, I'm biased because I'm an accountant and I've seen five years and six years instead of a bank. Um, you know, if I was working inside of a bank, I'd try to get into the credit department at one point because although nobody wants to actually be in the credit side because you're just adjudicating, you know, paper every day, but that's the heart of how the bank operates, right? You're taking on, you're assessing risk. So how do you, how do you determine risk and how, how does this particular organization deal with it is, is the learning part of it and that's the hard skill set. And then from there, I think you can do a whole bunch of other things. Now, you know, the, the fast track is trying to, you know, get into the, you know, the sales and the commercial banking end of it or in the investment bank of it. But, you know, what's the really hard skill there? Ultimately, somebody's going to still have to figure out if you want to stay in the finance and banking world, you're going to have to figure out how credit works. And maybe that's the first place to start. Um, and if you, you know, I'm an accountant by background, so I'm always biased for guys who are going to go get their, you know, accounting skills. 
um, and the, 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 the development of technologies relates to audit, the, conf the, the incredible complications as it relates to the regulatory environment for public and private companies uh, requires you to have some in-depth understanding of uh, how accounting and finance work. So that's what I mean by, you know, pick up some hard skills. You know, I've, I've, I encourage a lot of people that, you know, an MBA straight out of school is not a good idea. Like when I started work, you know, um, MBA was something you did after five or six or even 10 years of working. You saved a little bit of money. But in the meantime, you've taken on some junior roles inside of large corporations. Uh, the company would have seen that you're a, a, a potential high, high potential candidate, and you yourself saw yourself you're going to invest a couple of years of your life, and that's when you went back to and get your MBA and became a um, um, it became the uh, ultimate uh, rounding up of your career as you get to the next level of management and you start to incorporate much more technical aspects of finance and marketing into your into your learnings on top of your personal experiences inside of an entity. Now I see people coming out of the school and then adding another two years on, and it just seems like you're just kind of, you know, spending a couple hundred thousand dollars without, you know, any foundational work. You know, the, you know, the opportunity cost of, you know, of going to school is, you know, you've spent a couple hundred thousand, quarter of a million dollars, you've also burned two years of your life. There's a lot of learnings you can do in two years without spending a quarter of a million dollars. And so that's what I mean by kind of like hardcore technical gotcha. skills. I'd like to go back to something you said about um, the newspaper and how no one, I think that's, that's an, an interesting point, uh, how most you know, meeting rooms or, or when you go and see a CEO, they don't have the, the Wall Street Journal or the Economist in their, in their office now. How do you start your day? Well, I start my day, like I think uh, I'm a bit of a news junkie, so first thing in the morning I get up, I read you know, a couple of newspapers, have a coffee, um, you know, I, I talk with uh, some of my close friends as I walk in, I walk in every morning for about an hour to the office. And I spend about an hour talking to people that may be available for a quick chat as to what's going on in different sectors. Um, one of the things I, I'm trying to be very cognizant of is that when we invest and as, as managers or custodians of capital, we generally have very tight blinders on, you know, I'm really good, you know, technology investor, so I'm gonna focus in as much as I can on technology without understanding the ramifications of social society and the social behaviors of people, how that actually impacts on technology. You know, when we talk about guys in the banking world, guys who are investment bankers or, you know, guys who are in the mining industry and investment banking, they're just focused on the mining sector investment banking without thinking about, hey, you know what, this cycle's coming up and how do we deal with the fact that ultimately the cycle is going to end and you know where is the hot, where is the capital flowing so i think as as even at the most um, most um, uh, young you know as, as, even when you're very young i think you start to to have a wider appreciation of, of people and cultures and styles and politics and you know you, you know simple example how we're um, we're talking about brexit on a day-to-day -day basis but people really don't understand the fundamentals of how how uh, Great Britain got into the EU, uh, what's ca at the cause of this particular uh, situation, and what may be the outcome. But there's going to be trillions of dollars made or lost as a result of, of how uh, Brexit ultimately happens. Um, but um, I think setting, you know, I think, you know, reasonable people need to have a good understanding of the facts and you make a business case out of the facts. But there isn't enough time spent in understanding the uh, the overall global aspects of the world that we all live in. So you, you you spend a lot of time then trying to figure these things out, trying to assess the landscape, see where the the 
puzzles, the pieces of the puzzle are and trying to fit them all together. Yeah, so right now, one of the things I'm trying to do for, uh, for my, uh, my families is I do believe China and India will be the next growth area for the next 50 years. Uh, we have to figure out how to invest in that sector, and it's much like we needed to figure out how to invest in technology for the last 25 years, that if we miss this, I think you're going to miss growth. So, you know, Canada and the U.S. is going to grow by somewhere between 1.5% to 2% a year, 2.5% a year, but China and India is going to grow 65 to 10%, but it's not so easy investing in China. How do you get your money in? Who's the right people to partner with? How do you ultimately get it out? So I think that's the task in front of us, so we'll try to figure that out, and that's the hard part. Um, but it's no different than the people that were investing in, you know, real estate in the 1990s at White Castle. They ultimately figured out how we're going to invest in technology, and we all did it. And that office was full of, you know, accountants and lawyers, and we happened to be, you know, very successful telco and uh, and software uh, investors. So we have to figure this out. I think it's it's incumbent upon us uh, to to do it. And I think it's lazy to uh, say it's too hard to figure out. So. You mentioned that you know, India and China are the places for growth. Canada, U.S., pretty abysmal growth. Why should I be excited as a Canadian if I'm you know, in my early 20s? Why should I be excited to be yeah, a Canadian? And, and what should I be looking forward well, to here? Well, I think, it's, I think Canada is in, the, in, in an incredible spot. One, one is um, uh, we're, we're the next Switzerland of, of the world. And so we don't offend a whole lot of people. It's a uh, safe uh, place for capital to run to, and you're seeing that happening in Toronto and in Vancouver and even Montreal now. Um, you're seeing that um, we have a huge bath, you know, we still have a very large resource base. We have a highly educated workforce. Um, and, and more importantly, money is fungible. Uh, money moves uh, very quickly. So if you have the ability to speak another language, again, you have another hard technical skill. There will be demand for your services or 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 or, or or your um, uh, particular skills um, around the world. So I think, as a Canadian, I think um, you you get access to the U.S. So you get certainly get access to Europe, but the ability to access uh, Asia is is right there. Um, I had a interesting opportunity to uh, I was in Hong Kong over over um, over spring this past year. And I met with a gentleman. He went to U of T at the same, almost the same time as I did, did a CA, and now he's a CFO for one of the largest um, uh, real estate and retail companies based out of Hong Kong. So, you know, Canadian expat, um, and he learned to speak the language there. But he followed his his career of accounting, and he ended up in Hong Kong, and he ended up working for a large uh, multinational conglomerate based out of out of. Uh, HK. So I think, I think, you know, nothing prevents you from going anywhere. But I think we have all the benefits of anywhere else, and you still have the benefits of living in a relatively uh, safe and supportive environment. So we should be excited. As Canadians. I think so. I think so. And I think there is a huge cliff of people retiring, um, and you're seeing that in the banks, uh, which is a large hire of people, and you're seeing this void of people between the ages of 55 and 65. Um, and they've now retired off, so there's going to be a whole new generation of people moving up into that role, and so the more junior, middle-level roles will be available for the younger people coming in. So I, I think that's exciting, but I'd like to reiterate, I think you need to, you know, integrity is a really important part of what we all do. Um, I've been doing contracts uh, in one form or another, and I've never gotten into a contractual dispute in all those years, because one, you kind of deal with people you enjoy and people you trust, 
And number two is you'll hold up your end of the bargain. And I think at the end of the day, um, you know, we read about um, all the malfeasance that goes on in the, in, in the finance world. Um, but if you develop a reputation of holding up integrity and being a, um, and, and, and everybody knows what's right or wrong. You don't have to, you don't have to read the, uh, the appendix or the bylaws. We know what's right or wrong. And you, and you stay on the, on the path of doing the right thing and things happen to work out. I can tell you that uh, looking back, the, the, the crew that I started uh, working with, uh, when I left school, the, you know, there's about a dozen of us, we hung out together. And they've all gone on and been incredibly successful uh, careers. And they all have gone in path that nobody would have imagined. Uh, but it all started with uh, integrity, some you know, hard work and some luck. I like it. Yeah. Building a hard scale and building a brand are two things that I, hopefully the uh, audience as well, will be taken away from this conversation. Love, uh, love all the insights and uh, we appreciate your time. Great. Thank you. And that was our conversation with Elmer Kim. Thank you to Elmer for making this episode happen. This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew and I'm your host, Evan Sequera. If you like this episode, please subscribe, like it, share it. We really appreciate all the support. For more information on Capitalize for Kids and the work that we do to improve the lives of children in Canada, please feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. Tune in next week to our episode with CBC Dragon, Michelle Romano.